If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll look at verses uh, 18 through 20. I know through 29 is printed in the bulletin, but um, as we have a, a lot to get through this morning, I shortened the passage, so <clears throat> we're only going to look at the first three verses of what are, what's printed in the bulletin. So John 5, 18 through 20. Okay, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who helps us to understand your word, and more than that, to, um, to have a real encounter with you, uh, a real life-changing uh, encounter with you as we consider your word. We pray for your help now as we hear your word and consider it. We pray for this help in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works then these will he show him, so that you may marvel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so this week, a friend of mine emailed a couple of pastors that he knows, including me, uh, telling us that he's had this relationship with this young fellow for uh, a while. It's been mostly a business kind of advice, counsel relationship, but... Uh, that he's, he's been thinking for a while, I've got to share the gospel with this fellow, looking for the right opportunity, and then this fellow kind of sa sounds like out of the blue asked him about the gospel and asked him to learn more about uh, Christ and Christianity. So he's got this non-Christian friend who's interested uh, in learning about Christianity, and so this, this guy who emailed me, my friend, um, was asking if I could recommend one or two short books to introduce him to Christianity. That's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> Recommend one or two short books. That's a tough question. How would you answer that question? How would you, I mean, I've been a Christian, I don't know how long, a couple decades pretty much, and uh, that, that can't be right, I don't know. That's, that's probably almost right, I'm getting really old. Uh, <clears throat> 19 years, that's how long I've been a Christian. And, um, and, and I feel like I've, I've read a lot of books and uh, read the Bible quite a bit, and I, I'm just, continually discovering what it means to be a Christian. I'm con continually uh, amazed at who God is and what he's done for us. So it's, it's really hard to think about condensing all of that and finding the one resource or two short books that will help introduce Christianity to somebody. I basically started thinking about what is unique about Christianity and what is essential to Christianity. What's unique, sets it apart from everything else, and what's essential to it, as if uh, you have this thing and you've got Christianity, and if you don't have this thing, it's not Christianity. So uh, I ended up recommending um, Michael Reeves' uh, two books, which are introductory. They're deliberately, explicitly said to be introductory books, Delighting in the Trinity and Rejoicing in Christ. And uh, so talking about the Trinity and talking about Christ, Christianity could be said to be unique 
in a lot of different ways. You could hear a sermon pretty much every week and, and, and I would say something to the effect of this is what makes Christianity unique and it'll be some different facet of the faith, some different facet of the, the revelation of God and the, what the scriptures say about him because this, the, the scriptures are the uniquely true revelation about God. There's a lot that could be said to be unique about Christianity but unique and essential I think to Christianity um, is the God that we come to know in Jesus Christ. He is absolutely unique. And of course, he's the God we worship, so he's absolutely essential to Christianity. The God we come to know in Jesus Christ, that seems pretty basic, right? What's your religion about? It's about this God. He's unique. And if it weren't about him, there wouldn't be Christianity. Uh, it seems pretty basic, but it's actually the most profound thing. Jesus Christ reveals the one true God to us. He's a God unlike all the other gods of human imagining. He's not a God of human imagining. He's unlike what we would come up with. And, um, and he's the God. He's the God who's the source of creation, the source of all life, especially the source of our humanity as he made us in his image for a relationship with him. People have always had great difficulty, great difficulty accepting Christ's revelation of God. I just said this is what, what is unique and essential to Christianity is that uh, Jesus Christ reveals God to us. People have a really hard time accepting that. Everybody has a really hard time accepting Christ's revelation of God. The Jews in our text, and this is not... Um, just a sweeping declaration of uh, all Jews. It's not an anti-Semitic Semitic passage. This is the Jews who were in conflict with Jesus, which is a real historical thing that happened. These Jews who found themselves in conflict with Jesus were not willing to be taught by Jesus about God. Maybe, again, that seems obvious. Their enemy, they didn't want to listen to him. They didn't want to hear what he had to say as he revealed God to them. Maybe it's so obvious it's not worth pointing out. I think it is. They had preconceptions about God. They had unexamined presuppositions about him, what they expected him to be like. And they, they didn't question them, themselves at that level. They didn't examine their own presuppositions about God. They didn't like those presuppositions being challenged as Jesus came on the scene. None of us do. That's a universal problem. People don't want their preconceptions about God challenged and entirely reshaped by Jesus. So when Jesus healed the invalid on that Sabbath, which was what the beginning of chapter 5 is about, we looked at that last week, when he healed the invalid, it was on the Sabbath, and the Jews were looking to get somebody in trouble for, for doing this on the Sabbath. <clears throat> um, and, and then Jesus claimed divine prerogative for, quote, breaking the Sabbath. He said, yeah, I do, like, I do things like that because I'm God. Right? Uh, because he claimed divine prerogative for it, the Jews heard him claiming to be God and they sought to kill him for it. That's explicitly talked about in our passage. Uh, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, quotes around that really, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath, but they thought that he was. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Making himself equal with God. So instead of recognizing his claim and saying, 
this is amazing. This is great. Please disclose God to us, the true God. Teach us about the true God. Instead of doing that, they sought to kill him. They understood his claim to divinity. They understood it in some sense, but they rejected the nature of his divinity. They rejected him. They rejected the nature of the divinity that he reveals. We look at passages like this one as evidence or proof for Jesus' uh, for Jesus' divinity, the claim that Jesus is fully God. And that's a central claim to the Christian faith. And throughout the history of the church, you've got theologians and pastors trying to figure out what it means that Jesus is fully God. And how can we know that Jesus is fully God from the scriptures? And systematic theology is written that give you all the proof texts, right? That, that Jesus is fully God. That's clearly important. And we look to passages like this as evidence. It's one of the proof texts, right? Irenaeus, for example, uh, one of the ancient uh, church fathers, he says, he who in scripture is called God in an absolute and undifferentiated sense, and undifferentiated means he's not talking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he's just talking about God in an undifferentiated sense, is in truth the only God, and Christ indeed is called God in an absolute sense. Right? So he's God, he's fully God, he's the only God there is. And we look to passages like this as evidence for that. But this passage isn't just about the bare fact that Jesus is God. As if Jesus felt deep success and satisfaction in just convincing you that he is God. Spends all this time making these claims so that the light bulb will go on and you can know he is God. Problem solved. We've got the answer. He is God. It's not just the, the bare fact that he is God that he's, he's talking about here. This passage shows us the nature, the nature of his divinity. It shows us what kind of God it is that we're talking about. He's the unique one. What kind of God we're talking about when we talk about the God that Jesus Christ reveals to us. That's what this passage is about. And that is what people really have problems with. Not just the fact, the, the bare fact that Jesus is God. People have real deep problems with what kind of God Jesus is and reveals to us because Jesus so deeply challenges our preconceptions about God. We assume that God is like we are. We assume that we, we make, we project ourselves onto God. That's part of our basic unexamined presupposition package. We project ourselves onto him. <clears throat> and when we do that, it makes it easier to reject his rule in our lives, his rule over the world in, in my life. It is easier to reject his authority when I project myself onto him because we imagine God to be a dictator corrupted by ultimate power. God is, he must be, he's proud, he's self-centered. He's self-important. He's imperious because, of course, that's what we would be if we had his power. Power corrupts. And he's got absolute power. So, <clears throat> so perhaps with this vision, with this imagined God, perhaps we're justified in our rebellion. Perhaps it's reasonable to reject such a tyrant and maintain my own autonomy, 
and say, my will be done, not yours. Maybe that's reasonable if God's a tyrant. But Jesus, Jesus reveals a humble God. And that really bothers us. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and he's not just trying to get out of trouble here. He's not just trying to, you know, the Jews are looking to punish somebody for what they thought was a breaking of the Sabbath. And he's saying, no, not my fault. I'm just doing what the Father told me to do, right? Not what he's doing. <clears throat> truly, truly, I say to you, you need to listen to this. This is kind of the equivalent in the Old Testament is, thus saith the Lord. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is the Son of God. This is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. This is the whole God. This is the true God, the only God, saying that he defers that he follows, that he submits, that he obeys. This is God saying this. That is to say, it's the very nature of God to defer and to submit and to be humble. As Paul writes uh, so beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, which we're going to use as our confession of faith later at the Lord's table, <clears throat> Jesus, being God, that is, being the God that he is, being God, didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's hard to get our minds around. It seems paradoxical to us. It's it's counterintuitive because it runs against our presuppositions of, of what it must mean to be God. Um, Leslie Newbegin said, um, all ideas, this is a quote that's in the, the front page of the bulletin for you. <clears throat> it says, all ideas about what the word God means must be tested by what is to be seen in the words and deeds of this totally humble and obedient man. If you want to know what God means, that word, if you want to know what God is like, what, what his nature is, you have to measure that understanding by what's seen in the words and deeds of this totally humble and obedient man. Because Jesus reveals God to us. We think the very nature of God is to be sort of the, uh, <clears throat> the divine hulk. I'm the strongest that there is. That's what we think it means to be God. We think it, it must mean that he's the grand supreme conqueror lord, that God is the king of the mountain. And Jesus shows us that the very nature of God is to relinquish that spot. to be the meek and lowly and suffering servant. That's the nature of God. He says in, uh, in Mark's gospel, 
chapter 10. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So this is our vision of what lordship means. This is our vision of authority and power and greatness and glory. They lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all for, because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's in God's nature to serve and be humble and to give up his life for others. So God condemns boasting, for example, in, uh, in Psalm <clears throat> 75, our Old Testament reading, which Bill read earlier, God condemns boasting, not just because that's inappropriate to someone of your station. You really shouldn't boast. You know? If anybody's going to boast, I'm going to be the one to boast. He's not condemning boasting for that reason. He's condemning boasting because it's antithetical to his nature. And it's antithetical to our nature as we've been created in his image to be like him. It goes right against reality. God exalts the humble because humility is at the heart of his being. It's at the heart of our reality. It's because he is the God that he is, not in spite of his divinity. It's because of his divinity that he took on human flesh, that he suffered, that he died in order to serve sinful, rebellious humanity, in order to serve people like us, to exalt people like us to his right hand, to grant them his own authority over everything that he has made, to share his rule over the heavens and the earth, even to place his own spirit, himself in the person of his spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, the whole God, the only God, to place himself at the disposal of human beings, which we see in Jesus Christ, who right now is seated at God's right hand, and sends forth the Spirit of God as a human being. He commands and the Spirit goes. The Son didn't plug his nose and say, I'm going to tolerate your humanity and put on your filthy meat suit and do something entirely beneath me, something entirely unpleasant that I wish I didn't have to do, but I'm going to do it. It's going to be temporary. It'll be over. I hate to do it. Yeah. It is in God's nature to humble himself, which he did in the incarnation. This is the God that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. Contrary to our preferred preconceptions. Remember, this is not what we would imagine God to be like. This is not the way we project ourselves onto God. This is, this is not our preference. Jesus' humanity, what you see in the human being Jesus reveals God's divinity. It reveals what he is like. That is incredibly important. That's, that's something. It's very simple. Jesus' humanity reveals God's divinity. You could think about that for the rest of your life. You, you should. Jesus reveals a humble God and we can't stand it. Why? Because he shows us what the true image of God is. His humanity, 
doesn't just reveal divinity to us, it actually reveals what our humanity is supposed to be like. Our humanity is supposed to be a pattern for, of God's divinity. We're made in his image. When Jesus comes into the world and reveals the image of God to be humble, that shows us what we're supposed to be like. And it exposes our rebellion for what it really is. We are not justified in our rebellion against this God. Because we haven't been resisting a tyrant. We haven't been resisting a dictator. There's something deeply wrong with us. That we have so revolted against this God and against our own nature. As we were created in the image of this humble, submissive God. And we've broken reality itself by grasping for autonomous power and falsely accusing God of doing the same thing. And when Jesus exposes this deep fault that's in us by showing us the true nature of divinity as humble, it's more than we, we can bear, so we killed him. He didn't just want to, he did it. And he took the opportunity to love us with a love that is great for its humility. It's great for its humility, for his submission, for his obedience. <clears throat> for the Father, this is verse 20, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him. The Father will show the Son so that you may marvel. If there's an application of this text, it's just that. It's just you're going to marvel. Greater works than these. He's referring to greater than healing the invalid that he's done just, uh, just recently. Someone who's had a lifetime of suffering, paralyzed or disabled in some way for 38 years. Greater works than that. Greater works than healing someone even on the brink of death, which he had done just before that. <clears throat> greater even than bringing someone back from the dead, which he will do in just a little while with Lazarus. The greatest work of God was in allowing rebels and usurpers to mock him and lash him. And the greatest work of God was to carry the cross that people like us were forced upon him to be stripped and crucified and put to absolute shame and suffer absolute humiliation and unimaginable pain of every kind to carry our humanity through that whole process, through death, and then out the other side into resurrection and glory in order to love and serve and exalt people like us. All this so that you may marvel at the love that the Father has for the Son. So that you may marvel at the nature of this humble God. Wow. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would uh, continue to reveal yourself to us according to the revelation of uh, your Son that we have in the Scriptures. Even though that revelation may uh, rub us the wrong way, we pray for your Spirit's help so that we would 
see who you truly are in the face of Jesus Christ. We would take comfort and assurance in knowing your nature as it's disclosed to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray that uh, as our hearts and minds are changed, as we begin to apprehend the glory of your true nature, that you are the humble God, we pray that um, you would shape us and, and refashion us into your likeness, into the image of Jesus Christ himself, who is the perfect image of God. We pray that you would uh, restore our humanity through the humanity of Jesus Christ as we put our faith in him and, and uh, walk with you in him. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom going forward in this world so that uh, not just we ourselves would know who you are, but that all those around us, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors, even our enemies, would know who you are and would receive you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.